0: Dialogue, Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Minnesota has one of the highest rates of volunteering in the nation. Even in the age of COVID-19, many of us are pitching in to help, although social distancing and stay-at-home orders are changing the ways we deliver volunteer services. This week on Dialogue, Minnesota... University of Minnesota Professor of Psychology and Director of the U's Center for the Study of the Individual and Society, Dr. Mark Snyder, joins us via Zoom to discuss why we volunteer and the benefits of volunteering. Dr. Snyder, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota.
1: It's great to be with you again, Jim.
0: There is usually some crisis happening somewhere in the world at any given moment, but in times of relative calm, meaning no pandemics or major natural disasters in a community, what drives people to volunteer?
1: Jim, that's a really good question. Volunteering is a very, very common activity. It's estimated that in this country alone, the U.S., every year, over 60 million adults do some form of volunteering you know, whether it's structured volunteering, like working a shift every week at a food bank, or more informal volunteering, like taking turns with one's neighbors and checking in on a shut-in elderly person who lives on the block. Uh, These are ways that people get involved, they show their caring, their concern, their compassion uh, for others. It's one of the major ways in which societies do bond together to help, to make a difference, to make the world a better place. And let's not underestimate the economic value of volunteering. We think of volunteering as it is, as unpaid labor. That's the definition of volunteering. You know, but for every hour of volunteer services provided by volunteers, that's an hour of services that don't have to be paid for. So the net effect of it is that volunteers are contributing something like 170 billion dollars you know, to the economy. And this is just in routine times, year in, year out. You know, then, you know, when the unforeseen, the unpredictable, the unknown strikes, whether it's a hurricane, an earthquake, or now in our current times of living in a pandemic, you know, with crises uh, threatening society, we see even more volunteering occurring. People want to rise to the challenge, want to make a difference, whether it's by increasing their gifts to charity, or whether it's finding ways to give their time, you know, to help, whether it is uh, just doing more of reaching out to neighbors to just offer, you know, their their help. These are things we see dramatic spikes upward you know, when society is facing a challenge, you know, a crisis, and we're certainly seeing it now with the COVID-19 pandemic, that charitable organizations report, you know, noticeable increases in giving, organizations that place volunteers in volunteer opportunities report increases in inquiries of how can I volunteer, how can I make a difference? We just see Legions of ordinary people reaching out and one by one doing things that add up to an extraordinary response. We, you know, see in our world of uh, a computer age where, you know, people are able to connect with each other without going face to face, which is really important because one of the things about the COVID-19 epidemic is we're told, keep your social distance, stay six feet apart or in other countries on the metric system, it's stay two meters apart. (laughs) And I mentioned this because I did an interview with another country and they asked me, could you please, when you refer to social distance, say two meters, don't say six feet, because (laughs) otherwise our listeners might not quite get what you say. Well, you know, in an age where we want to keep our social distance but want to do things to help, it turns out there are just a lot of ways for people to help without leaving home. I've been struck by the number of computer-based chat services that have developed uh, using technologies like uh, uh, Zoom, Skype, FaceTime on the iPhone, uh, Duo on the Android phone, that people can just volunteer their time to provide companionship to people who are shut-ins. Uh, so um, there are these bulletin boards like Nextdoor, which is a way of neighbours checking in with neighbours, and I've seen lots of notices on those. If you'd be willing you know, to be available as a volunteer to chat with shut-in elderly people, we can coordinate these uh, services. These are ways of making uh, a difference. People volunteering their professional services lawyers providing pro bono legal services, doctors and nurses, you know, to the extent they have any free time left over from professionally responding to the pandemic, giving some of their services to community free clinics. These are just ways that people uh, respond in times of crisis and uh, it can be very impressive and often people develop new habits. They may initially want to do something because they want to make a difference say they sign up to volunteer to drive to the grocery store you know, or to the pharmacy to pick up things for a shut-in person or somebody in frail health who can't do it, but they realize that they're making a difference. And often when the time of crisis passes, as we hope will happen in the case of this pandemic, people say, well, you know, I've learned the habit of volunteering. I've learned the habit of making a difference. I'm going to find ways to continue doing it. So we see... That volunteering has a way of begetting more volunteering. Uh, it continues, it develops a life of its own. People reach out and encourage their friends, neighbors, and family members to also be volunteers. They set an example, and even if they don't actively reach out to persuade others to be volunteers, other people see what volunteers are doing and say, you know. I could do this too and so we see a spread of volunteering through communities and one long-term benefit of volunteering is that communities grow stronger as a result of volunteering because volunteering solidifies the bonds of concern, the bonds of mutual help uh, that make communities
0: strong communities. Our guest is Dr. Mark Snyder, professor of psychology and the director of the Center for the Study of the Individual and Society at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about volunteering in the age of COVID-19. What drives a person to want to help others?
1: This is a very good question. In some ways, it's the multimillion dollar question in the study of volunteering. There's absolutely no doubt that a very core component of volunteering is people's care, concern, compassion for others, the desire to be a good citizen, to be altruistic. And it's sometimes tempting to think, and that is the whole story. People are out volunteering because they really care for others. And as much as it is true that volunteering is associated with concern for others, wanting to make a difference, it's really not the whole story because it turns out people who don't volunteer are also very concerned about society. So if you look at data on this, and I look at data a lot because I'm a scientist, look at people volunteer by margins of two to one, 70 plus percent, they agree volunteering is very important, people should make a difference, the world is made better by volunteering, and that fits with the fact that they are volunteering, but if you look at people who don't volunteer and you ask them, do you value volunteering? Should people get involved? Should they make a difference? Well, it turns out that people who don't volunteer, also by margins of two to one, 70 plus percent, believe that volunteering is a good idea. People should do it. The world would be a better place. Yet, curiously, they don't you know, uh, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And so the question is, what is layered on top of these good, well-intentioned human values for people who actually do the volunteering. And it turns out that for people who take those first steps to volunteering and who may sustain it over weeks, months, years, decades, make a lifetime habit of it, what these people have discovered is that volunteering isn't just something that does good for other people, that helps the community, that contributes to society. As much as it does all those things, it also delivers direct benefits back to the volunteers themselves. So volunteers have found that at one and the same time, they can do good for other people and do good for themselves they may boost their own self-esteem, they may learn new skills, they make new friends and form new relationships and even career contacts through volunteering. They may address some of their own insecurities. And in fact, when researchers have looked at helping that occurs in times of crisis, such as after an earthquake or after a hurricane, after a tsunami, you do find that people who help in response to these crises, a very important motivation and a very clear benefit of that helping is it helps address and helps cope with their own personal distress so that they are calmer as a result of the help that they give. Whether it's because the feeling that you can make a difference and that you are making a difference does contribute to a sense of well being, whether it's distraction from taking your mind off your own troubles, whether it's seeing as difficult as my own situation is, there may be other people who also are bad off or even worse off than I am. We're not quite sure what it is, but there's no doubt that getting involved, helping in response to a crisis does help to alleviate the personal distress, the sense of threat that being affected by these things uh, does. Although there aren't any data in yet from the current pandemic, because it's a little too soon to see data. If I were to generalize from what's known from research and helping in other times of crisis, then we would see that the many people who are responding by giving help, whether it's in the form of charitable donations, volunteering, getting involved in their communities, that this may be alleviating their personal distress, may be buffering them against threats to their own you know, well-being, and they're making a difference. They're contributing. They're making everybody's life better off by their helping. So in effect, it becomes a win-win situation, the world is better off because people respond by giving and volunteering in times of crisis and the people who do it end up being better off as a result of it.
0: Our guest is Dr. Mark Snyder, professor of psychology and the director of the Center for the Study of the Individual and Society at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about volunteering in the age of COVID-19. Dr. Snyder, you mentioned that oftentimes when people volunteer, it helps foster a sense of community and solidarity. Is this feeling and motivation for volunteering lost in this time of social distancing?
1: This is a really good question. If I could digress a little bit and say I'm so fascinated by the phenomenon of social distancing. Uh, One, I'm fascinated by how effective it, it seems to be if people will just keep their distance this really does contain spread of the virus and so and it's not a difficult thing to do to maintain distance although I work from home and shelter in place a term I didn't really know till we were told to do it. Um, I do treat myself every day to 30 minutes of going out for a walk in my neighborhood. Um, I wear a mask uh, and I social distance I keep my distance but I'm struck by, how well coordinated everyone is. There are other people who are out walking, and there's very nice signaling systems that seem to develop with nods or turning one's head to who's gonna to move to the other side of the street so people don't have to walk right up against each other. And I'm struck by the coordination that social distancing is producing in these cases. And one of the reasons I'm struck is it shows how resilient people are, they adapt. This isn't something that we did before, but we're learning it. We learn how to walk or to walk with a friend or neighbor, and yet we maintain one person is six feet ahead on the sidewalk, another is six feet behind, or one is walking on the grassy boulevard and the other is on the far edge to the curb and we're six feet apart, and we do this, and we adjust where we're walking. So I think there are ways in which social distancing may actually help to connect people because we may think more about what are the mechanics of coordination that it takes to social distance. Now, admittedly, most of the time I'm in my house and my connections with people are through uh, video conferences like Zoom or FaceTime on my phone, you know, and stuff. And it's given, you know, new meaning to the term FaceTime. That's not just the name of an app on my phone. So we do get to see each each other's faces this way. But this is a form of connection. And I think we are developing new understandings and new experiences of connection as we learn the new habits of how we connect with and interact with people in this time of, you know, of pandemic. So I'm not worried that we are threatening or weakening the bonds of society. We're changing some of them. People are learning new modes of connection, uh, whether it's through all of our interactions mediated by the internet, or it's when we're outside, we learn how to space ourselves when we walk or we're learning how in the grocery store in the checkout line each person stands on the white dot on the floor which gets us six feet apart while we're waiting to check out. These are just new habits. We're learning them. Uh, they do keep us space. They are helping to keep us healthy. Uh, they're, you know, allowing us to shop. And I believe we're going to soon be seeing more stores will be allowed to open with appropriate social distancing and spacing, uh, you know, in them. And I think that as we learn these new habits, we learn that we can cope. I think there's a sense of effectiveness or as we call it in my field, efficacy, which just means effectiveness, that comes from we know how to do it. I cannot tell you how good I felt the first time I went to the grocery store and saw the white dots on the floor and saw people figured it out because I was kind of nervous. How am I going to check out, you know, with my food? Because that's where the, the backup, the congestion is going to occur. Well, no, they figured it, you know, out. Uh, And by just modifying a little bit about how the checkout lanes are constructed, there's more space between the customers and the checkers, the cashiers, you know, at it. And this is a sense of effectiveness, that we're doing things that make difference Uh, and this is important because the sense of effectiveness I think also helps to motivate us to keep doing the things that we need to do because all indications are that this isn't going to be over tomorrow or next week and we may be seeing some relatively permanent uh, changes to how you know we you know we operate Uh, I mean I heard enough or read enough on the internet about how we may never go back to shaking hands as a form of greeting. And we may never even go to the substitute that was being recommended for a while of the bumping elbows instead. No, we will learn from a few feet away, six feet to be precise, to say hello, to nod our heads, to give a little wave. uh, And Well, adapt. Uh, You know, humans are adaptive and resilient. uh, And not only do they adapt, but they, you know, learn to reap the benefits of the sense of effectiveness and control that comes from adapting.
0: Our guest is Dr. Mark Snyder, professor of psychology and the director of the Center for the Study of the Individual and Society at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about volunteering in the age of COVID-19. How can parents inspire children to volunteer and help their communities at this time?
1: One of the things is very clear about the development of volunteering is the transmission across generations. So that uh, people who volunteer, it's very clear, they grew up in households with higher rates of volunteering. So whether it's by direct encouragement of parents actively saying, you know, you should volunteer or leading by example, the patterns of generational transmission of volunteering are very well uh, ingrained. And so it's already occurring i think now uh leading by example is a a really important thing that you know parents should be showing children how they do social distance that they wear a mask when they go out in public and encourage children to do exactly the same thing the one frustration that i have Uh, when I go out in public is it does seem to me that adults are doing so far doing a better job of social distancing when they're out in public and wearing masks than teenagers are. And not to rag on teenagers because I was once a teenager and every adult was once a teenager. I think there's still some distance that needs to be covered uh, in increasing Rates and patterns of social distancing among adolescents and it's a little bit of a tough group to address because one of the things of younger people teenagers uh in particular is the sense of invulnerability that the virus is no respecter of age it affects people of all ages and this message has to be driven home to people of all ages uh, to increase rates of compliance with the relatively simple acts of social distancing wearing a mask Wash your hands as many times a day as you can for 20 seconds each time. Use hand sanitizer uh, and such. These are not difficult things, you know, to do. And the message just has to be, you know, repeated over and over again to turn these things into, you know, into habits. And to the extent that uh, there can be peer pressure developed of, you know, getting some people to set the example and others of their same age will follow along. I think we will see increasing rates of compliance even among, you know, young people. I expect, too, we're going to see more media-based campaigns. Uh, And I'm not so much thinking of old media as in television commercials. I'm thinking more, you know, new media you know, Twitter, Instagram, you know, et cetera. Like I've been struck by on Twitter, how many little videos have been posted about how easy it is to make your own mask. You know, you just tear apart an old t-shirt and fold it in certain ways and just use rubber bands to put it around your ears and it's remarkably effective. And just getting the word out that, There's a lot of DIY do it yourself things that you can do posting Instagram posts of people making their mask and putting it on. I think these things will really help, you know, to reach, you know, younger people who I do think is where there's a tremendous growth opportunity uh, to promote, you know, increased, um, you know, use of the techniques that will help, you know, control, reduce exposure, uh, and transmission of the virus.
0: Dr. Snyder, you talked about what motivates a person to volunteer, but what factors lead a person to get involved in a volunteer organization over many years or perhaps even a lifetime?
1: One of the things that's very striking about volunteering is it's not just a one-time thing. There is a lot of volunteering that is very self-contained like everybody one Saturday afternoon agreeing to help clean out the alley on one's block. But a lot of volunteering is sustained. People sign up to spend every Saturday afternoon for the foreseeable future, say being a big brother, big sister, providing companionship uh, to a child, working a shift at a food bank or a shelter. And these things often go on for long periods of time. And some of our earliest research on volunteering we committed to following volunteers until they stopped volunteering to get the whole life history of being a volunteer. We didn't realize that there'd be volunteers who we still would be following years and decades later because this is sometimes how long it goes on. What we've seen in our research and other research does tend to deliver the same message is that the basis for volunteering And the nature of volunteering does seem to grow, develop, and evolve over time. Whereas in the beginning, people volunteer. They may start volunteering because they care about a cause. They want to make a difference, whether it's helping children to read or getting food to people who are hungry through working at a food bank, delivering meals on wheels to shut in, because they really care about the issue. But over time it turns out that what sustains the volunteering, that gets people to be one of those volunteers who keeps renewing their commitment for first, I'll do it for a couple months, I'm gonna do it for another couple months, I'm gonna do it for another year, that it becomes a way of life, is this integration into the benefits that volunteering is delivering to the person. So very long serving volunteers. The people that I sometimes call the survivors, that they really stick with, and they are survivors, because they're often sticking with their volunteering in adversity. Um, Volunteering, it takes time away from doing other things. They're giving up a lot of their free time. It may take them away from friends and family, but they keep doing it week after week month after month, year after year. It's because they have transitioned the basis of their volunteering from not just their humanitarian concern and compassionate values uh, to one of, the personal benefits they're deriving from it. They've learned how to boost their self-esteem. They've learned how to feel better about themselves. They've learned how to use volunteering as a way to meet people, to make friends, to maybe even uh, develop career contacts. They develop these benefits to self, which it turns out are the major sources of support. So the major thing that predicts how long people serve as a volunteer is not how committed they are to volunteering as an abstract goal. They believe it, but so do the people who drop out early after only a few months perhaps of volunteering. The ones who stick with it, they've integrated into their personal agendas of what they get for themselves at the same time as they deliver benefits to others. These are people who in effect create a win-win situation of doing good for others and doing good for themselves at the same time. And this is a transition that tends to develop relatively organically so to speak among volunteers but sometimes it's also facilitated by conversations among volunteers, where they share their experiences about what they're getting out of volunteering. And often these sharing of experiences take the form of people saying to others and hearing themselves saying things like, you know, I knew when I started volunteering that I'd be, I'd be making a difference for other people and by helping. But what I didn't know is how much I would get out of volunteering. And you know, when I get out of volunteering, It's very, very important to me. It's part of who I am. That part of my identity is that I'm a volunteer. And that if I were to stop volunteering, I wouldn't be me anymore. And another thing that uh, is, I think, very, very important. A few moments ago, I referred to these long-serving volunteers as survivors. And they survive what can sometimes be the adversity of volunteering. The opportunity costs it takes you away from your own recreation, your leisure, takes you away from friends and family. It can at times be a little bit stressful. Research is emerging that shows that volunteers, in particular those who volunteer for a long time and a particular older volunteers, their health improves as a result of volunteering and their survivorship uh, increases as the volunteers live longer. So they're survivors and they survive as volunteers, but they also survive as people as a result of volunteering and communities and society survive as a result of the efforts of volunteers that make society a stronger place.
0: Dr. Mark Snyder is a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota. He is also the director of the U's Center for the Study of the Individual and Society. Dr. Snyder, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you, Jim. It's a
1: great pleasure
0: to be with you. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Pandemics have impacted the world throughout recorded history. A new course at the University of Minnesota is examining the COVID-19 crisis in the historical context of previous pandemics with a focus on public health policy. Next week, a conversation with U of M doctoral fellow Macy Flood, who is teaching the class. Be sure to visit us at dialogminnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.